How many of you remember cartoons of the 1960s, such as Bugs Bunny, The Road Runner, Woody Woodpecker, Tom and Jerry? Some of my earliest memories are of our family watching cartoons on Saturday mornings. My dad loved cartoons. I remember one morning, somewhere around the age of five, waking up in our home in upstate New York, and our front door had blown open during the night, and the opening was completely filled with snow from the top of the door in a slope all the way down to the bottom of the stairs that led up to our second floor. It was a record-breaking blizzard that dumped more than eight feet of snow in that area. What I remember as well, though, is sitting on the couch with my dad on that morning and watching cartoons. What was it about those cartoons that could command our attention even more than the eight feet of snow that needed to be shoveled out of the doorway? One of our favorite cartoons was Popeye the Sailor Man. Do you remember the tune? And could you sing it along with me, please? I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. I'm strong to the finish because I eats me spinach. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. Doot, doot. Now, there are a number of different ways to understand the message of Popeye's cartoon. If you're familiar with it, you may remember that Popeye wanted to win the heart of olive oil. But so did his arch nemesis, Bluto. And Bluto was at least two or three times the size of Popeye and the favored winner in any kind of skirmish or fight they would have. He didn't hesitate to fight dirty either. As Popeye would be taking a little bouquet of flowers to olive oil, skipping and whistling a tune, Bluto would intercept his his plans, coming into the scene to tease Popeye mercilessly, taunt him, tripping him up, and beating him up in front of olive oil even. But Popeye had a secret something that would enable him to win every time. Spinach, an unlikely hero. It was made even more unlikely, in my view anyway, by the fact that it was canned spinach. Ew! Somehow, a can of spinach would miraculously appear in Popeye's hands. He would squeeze it and down the contents, And all of a sudden, voila, his strength would grow exponentially and he would win the day, usually with a quick uppercut to Bluto's chin, which would boot him out of the scene completely. Yay, spinach! So what was this cartoon about? Was this cartoon about eating your veggies to increase your strength? Was it about good conquering evil? Was it about finishing strong? Or about the underdog winning? 
Or was it about how to use a secret weapon to undermine big oppressive systems of injustice represented by Bluto there? This story is just like so many others that we are enamored with in cartoons, movies, other art forms, literature, and also the Bible. It is a parable. Let's review the definition of parable we learned last week as theologian C.H. Dodd states it. At its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease the mind into active thought. Today's parables definitely have some strangeness to them. And unlike the parables we learned about the past couple of weeks, these parables are not explained in the Bible. So there is much debate among the experts as to their meaning. There are five parables in today's reading, and all of them seek to tell us something of the kingdom of heaven. We can't delve deeply into all five, but we can touch on a few things. Parable number one. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds. But when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. At first glance, with our Western eyes, we understand this to mean something like this. This little tiny seed grows unexpectedly into something quite big, a huge tree where cute little birdies come to seek protection and make their home. And yes, it is about growth, and it is about the notion that the extent of the growth is hidden in the seed, which is then hidden in the ground. But Jesus' listeners would have been quite surprised, even shocked, that he would use something as banal as a mustard shrub that they considered a weed to represent the kingdom of God. Why not a majestic cedar of Lebanon? Surely that would be more appropriate. Now there's much debate about some of the facts of this uh, parable as well. One commentator spoke of the fact that the mustard seed isn't actually the smallest seed. That's a proverbial kind of a saying. Another one went so far as to say Jesus exaggerated and pretty much left it at that. Another talked about how no one in Jesus' audience would consider even remotely planting a mustard seed because the resulting shrub would just overtake everything in the garden and the neighbor's garden and their neighbor's garden. Another shock in this parable would be Jesus' reference to birds of the air. 
Most agree that would be a reference to Gentiles, and Jesus' listeners would wonder about that reference. Gentiles were not welcome. Nor were the birds that would make their home in the mustard shrub that took over the entire neighborhood's garden. So what is this parable about? Being content with small seeds because the fruit of those seeds would be large? Is it about the subtlety and the humility implied by the kingdom being represented by a weed? Is it about the uncontrollable growth? Is it about the kingdom being available to all people groups? Is it possible that Jesus is suggesting that the kingdom is pervasive like the weed that comes from the mustard seed and not dominant like the cedars of Lebanon? Parable number two. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. This seems pretty straightforward. We all know that a little bit of yeast permeates the whole batch. But this was a jarring story for Jesus' listeners. That Jesus would use yeast as a positive image would throw off his listeners right off the bat. Because for them, unleavened bread or yeastless bread was considered holy. Remember Passover. Yeast or leaven was actually, for them, a metaphor for moral corruption. Why would Jesus be using a metaphor for moral corruption to describe the kingdom of heaven? That is just one of the shocking elements of this parable. So in these first two parables in particular, Jesus doesn't seem to mind explaining the kingdom of heaven in metaphors of weeds and moral corruption. How do we feel about that? What is he trying to tell us? Parable number three. The kingdom of heaven is like... Treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Here in this parable, we see the continuing theme of hiddenness coming out. There seems to be a hidden treasure in the mustard seed, a hidden treasure in the yeast. The person in this parable finds actual hidden treasure uh, in a field, And in those days, it was a common practice for people to bury valuables on their property to protect them from thieves. There also seems to be a hidden quality to the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 11.25, Jesus thanked the Father, quote, that you hid these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to infants. Apparently, those infants are the disciples because we heard in last week's sermon that Jesus told the disciples, to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but it is not given to them. And furthering the hiddenness claim, 
A little further ahead in Matthew 16, we read, Then he commanded the disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And what is that about? Why would Jesus tell the disciples to tell no one about him and his identity? Why that hiddenness? As you may know, I'm a hospital chaplain, and our ministry is a ministry of listening. A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting with a patient in the hospital and listening to his story. He had fallen a few times at home, and they brought him in, and he ended up on one of my units. At this point, he was struggling with a lot of worry and anxiety. And when he told me about that, I asked him, how is that serving you? And he said, it's not serving me at all. It's ruining my sleep. It's affecting my relationships. It's keeping me from praying and from deepening my relationship with God. Then he sat back in his chair and he looked at me and he said, boy, it sure feels different when I say it myself. As for me, many people told me about Jesus for over 40 years. Family, friends, work acquaintances, preachers, classmates, even strangers. But I was not convinced by their arguments for the existence of God or for Jesus, nor by their formulaic prayer that I should say in order to be saved. Saved from what? nor by any tracts that I may have been given. But at the age of 41, I took a trip through the Canadian Rockies and had an encounter with Jesus the Christ. And I can tell you, boy, it sure felt different when I met him myself, when I discovered the treasure the whole trajectory of my life turned. Why would Jesus tell the disciples to tell no one about him and his identity? Barbara Brown Taylor suggests that one of the hardest things about believing in God is our ineptness at describing him. It sure feels different when we meet him for ourselves. Parable number four. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This parable is usually paired with the last one, but with a bit of a twist. Surprise, surprise, that Jesus would use a twist. Whereas in the last parable, the man buys the field where he happens to find the treasure. In this parable, the merchant is actually seeking the treasure. And when he finds it, he sells everything for it, the treasure. Whether stumbling on it or seeking it, these people find the hidden treasure is worth everything they own. Our fifth and final parable Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net 
that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Robert Brown Taylor again writes, If the kingdom of heaven is like that, then it is not in the end something we find, but something that finds us and hauls us into the light. And we heard about that weeping and gnashing of teeth in Ryan's sermon last week. And this parable here references right back to that. And just like last week, let's agree that though Jesus is certainly talking of judgment, this judgment should be good news for us, knowing that the ways of the wicked will not prosper and that the evil that we see in the world around us is ultimately in the hands of a righteous judge, a good and right God who is making all things new and bringing our world and the cosmos to a place of ultimate peace, justice, and love. Five parables, a lot to digest in just a little time. After delivering the disciples these five parables in rapid-fire fashion, he asks them in verse 51, Have you understood all this? They answered, Yes. Really? (laughs) Let's give them some grace. After all, their teacher had just given them a hefty lesson and wrapped up with, Got it? The pressure was on these young adults. Of course, what's not to get? (laughs) They probably did get some of it. And in the last verse of this intense and challenging passage of Scripture, Jesus indicates that those with whom the secrets of the kingdom have been shared now become teachers of those secrets. Five parables. The common thread throughout is the hiddenness in these images that Jesus presents. If the kingdom is like these hidden things, then it is not something readily apparent and easy to explain, but rather something that must be searched for, or something just below the surface of things, waiting to be discovered and claimed. It is so easy to get distracted in a world of bigger and better, and shiny, and glamorous. But Jesus seems to suggest that the kingdom of heaven is hidden in plain view among things in our everyday life. A mustard seed in the ground, yeast in the dough, treasure in a field, common in those days, a rare pearl among pearls, Perhaps the kingdom of heaven is like an ordinary little girl on an ordinary sofa with her ordinary father watching Popeye one morning as the snow waited to be shoveled. Perhaps the kingdom of heaven 
is like a patient in the hospital coming to his own realization that his worry and anxiety were keeping him from discovering the treasure that is the presence of God. Perhaps the kingdom of heaven is like a can of spinach arriving just in the nick of time. Perhaps Jesus uses these images to wake up his listeners, including us, so we might see that the kingdom of heaven, the presence of God, the treasure is in our very midst. Maybe one of these parables is speaking to you today. If so, why not hold the image and let it percolate inside of you this week and see if you get a fresh insight an aha moment, or maybe a new twist on an old story. Awaken, friends. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen.